Amen. Good job, guys. Man, I don't want to follow that. <laughs> These kids are adorable. <laughs> and singing the truths of Scripture. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church that cares about children and that invests in children. You know, one of our core values here is family and families. We care about families because God cares about families. Thank you to all the work that Rachel does and Rebecca, Jada. How cool is it to see, you know, you got young married and we got uh, Rachel, young single. And we have uh, Aaron as a family man who's down there directing. And uh, over here, Grace, this way. <laughs> Somebody point her. <laughs> it's so cool to see just the generations. Jada McGlasson, teenager down there holding the cue cards. It's so cool to see all the generations. Not every church has that where we have uh, multiple generations that are investing. We have college kids back there. We have young professionals and we have senior adults and everything in between. I'm, I'm grateful for our nursery workers right now who are down there and uh, for everyone who's investing in the lives of our children. Uh, those are truths that they will return to when times are hard. How many of you can still remember Christian songs that you learned when you were a child? I do. You never forget them. They become part of you. Youth choir, Lauren Moody was our, our pianist for youth choir, and I still remember those songs. They come back to me at, at all kinds of random times. So uh, thank you again, Aaron and, and, and Rachel, for the music ministry and children's ministry and all that you're doing to invest in our children. All right, this is it. We have two more weeks in Isaiah. You've hung in there. This is like the big finish, the big finale in the book of Isaiah. And I'm so excited about these last two chapters because they're such beautiful chapters. I can't wait to share the truths of these with you today. But first, I want to show an image. Do you know what this, this, this painting is called here? Do you, have you seen this before? It's called, anybody know what the name of it is? The Peaceable Kingdom, of course, Pam Newton knows. If you ever want to do trivia night, I'd take Pam with you because she probably would dominate. The Peaceable Kingdom. Do you know the history behind this painting? I kind of dug into it a little bit. It's based on text from Isaiah chapter 11 and chapter 65, which we're going to see today. But it was, it was painted by a guy named Edward Hicks. Edward Hicks is not a great painter, <laughs> okay? But his paintings, especially this one, are featured in every art history class. I think I took it in high school and remembered seeing this painting. His paintings are on display in the National Archive in, in Washington, D.C., and he's one of the most famous folk American painters. He never had any training. His dad was a British loyalist who was on the wrong side of the Revolutionary War and ended up completely broke and destitute. His mom died when he was only 18 months old. He was taken in by a family friend who was Quaker and who read the Bible to Edward as a young boy over and over again every night. And he heard these passages from Isaiah about when the lion and the lamb would lay down together about a day that's coming where peace would reign. And, and he was a big fan of William Penn. He was born in Pennsylvania, and you see in the background here, William Penn making a lifelong friendship treaty with the Native Americans from that region. And you know that William Penn honored that treaty, but of course his successors did not. But this, this painting, why is it, I mean, it's not a great painting according to art historians, but it's an important one. Why is it still capturing the minds and imaginations of people who look at paintings? Why is it taught in every art history class? 
Why did Edward Hicks, who was a carriage painter who dabbled in painting biblical scenes, and then his Quaker brethren said, you can't do that, that's indulgent, so he stopped for a while, but then he said, no, I'm going to paint anyway and use the gifts that God has given me to glorify him. I think what's so compelling about this picture is that it appeals to something that's true. It appeals to something that's deep within us that we long for. We know that this is not how things are today. You would never see animals and children, predators and, and prey in close proximity, lying down in peace together. We know that the, the treaty between William Penn and the Native Americans didn't last long because this is not the way things are, but it's the way things should be according to the Lord. It's the way things once were, actually, and as we're going to see in Isaiah, it's the way things will be once again someday. In our text for today, we're going to see an answer to Isaiah's prayer at the end of chapter 64 that we looked at last week. We saw how Isaiah ended his prayer with this kind of desperation, crying out to God about how much his people had suffered and about how much their holy places had been defiled and destroyed. And Isaiah knows that God can make it right. And here in chapter 65, we get to hear God's reply. And it's a good one, a really good one. It's more than Isaiah asked for. It's, it's even more than Isaiah could have imagined. God's answer to Isaiah's prayer of, of where are you and, and why aren't you fixing this is a promise a promise of a great reversal that, that undoes all the damaging effects of sin on all creation. So before we get into the text for today, I, I want to look back, okay, at how we got here. Because what we're going to see in Isaiah 65 and 66 is the end of the story, the, the, the culmination, climactic denouement moment of consummation of the kingdom as it should be. But before that, let's, let's talk about how we got there briefly, okay? This is the story that's told in Scripture, and it's really the only true story ever told. All other true stories are encapsulated in this story. It's, it's the story of everything ever, as I like to say. And it's a story that runs countercultural to our world today. It's a, it's a story that runs counterintuitive to the way our minds generally think. It's a story with the triune God at the center of it. He's the protagonist. He's the hero of the story. And what the hero is doing in the story is reigning over a kingdom. He's expanding his kingdom everywhere, but it's not a kingdom like with knights and walls and stuff that we typically think of. This kingdom is an upside down kind of kingdom where the first shall be the last. The first in this world shall be the last. Where the least in this kingdom of this world are going to be the greatest. And the way that God's kingdom advances is not through violence or subjugation or domination or coercion, but through working backwards, through subversion. It's like Samwise Gamgee says, I quote it all the time, Evan's a big uh, Lord of the Rings fan, everything sad is going to come untrue. 
I love all those re-words. I use those re-words a lot to describe the work of the kingdom. It's a great renewal of all things. It's a restoration of how things should be. It's about redemption, bringing back to God what has been uh, taken away from him through sin. And as we'll see today, it's a recreation of a whole new kind of world. So our outline is called The Upside Down Kingdom, How Redemption Works Backwards. And before we get to our text, I just want to briefly remind us of how the story of everything ever begins. And what we're going to see is a reverse order in Isaiah 65. So point number one, if you have your outline, if you, if you don't pick up an outline, we do have an outline now, a written one every week that you can pick up next to your order of service when you come in. Uh, we're going to put those on the website too for people who are watching at home can, can utilize those if they wish as well. But point number one is, you know this, Genesis 1.1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew word for create is bara. It's a really cool word because it's only used of God. Only God baras, which means we don't create. We fashion things out of what God has created. If you're a physics person, I like to think of it in terms of the law of conservation of mass. Do you remember this from ninth grade physics, anybody? The law of conservation of mass says that matter can neither be what? Created nor destroyed. Pam Newton, again, she knew it. I knew she did. <laughs> matter can't be created. It can't be barad, because only God barahs. We have a lot of creative people. I mean, Andrea Silva is so creative, but what she's really doing is, is using that image-bearing gift of God to fashion things out of which, which I think is awesome. And if you're a creative type, please use those gifts for the glory of God. So as a master artist, God does this amazing creative work, speaking all of creation into existence. And what's cool is at the end of each stage of creation, as an artist, he steps back and examines his work. And what does he say? He says, oh, it's good. It's good. It's a Hebrew word called tov, and it means that it's right. It means that it's as it should be. It's really a beautiful word. He says, oh, it's tov. It's good. And, and after he's put all the stars in their place across the universe, and after he's put all the, the, the galaxies in their place, and after he's filled the, the oceans with coral and, and sharks and octopi, and before, after he's put the, the giraffes and the hyenas in the grasslands, after he's finished with all that, he gets to the crown of creation. Look at the grand finale of the creation story in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, equal image bearers, male and female. It takes both genders to show who uh, God accurately is. He created them. And God blessed them. That's point number two on your outline. 
God created the, the heavens and the earth, but then he took humans as his image bearers, the crown of creation, and he blessed them. Why did he bless them? Because he had a special purpose for humans that was different from all the other created animals and elements in creation. He had a job for them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, this time he says, it was tov me'od, very good. It was very good. It was a peaceable kingdom. It was exactly as God wanted it to be, with humans serving as vice regents, as agents of God's own governance over the world. He gives the humans, the crown of creation, special task, and he blesses them and sets them apart for this task. It's a, a beautiful story, but you know it didn't stay that way. Adam and Eve, of course, chose their own way over God's good Tove way, and they ate of the one tree that God said you can't eat from. They had every good tree, every plant, everything that was good for food and for looking at, and they said, no, I don't want any of that. I want that one thing. Death and darkness and, and decay came rushing into the world that was once very good, making it wrecked. So God then judges sin. That's the third blank on your outline. He created the heavens and earth. He blessed the humans. They sinned. And then what does he do? As a just and holy God, he judges sin. He has to. It's in his nature. That's point number three, Genesis 3, 14 to 19. He curses Satan, the deceiver who deceived Adam and Eve. And he tells Satan that Adam and Eve's offspring will one day crush his head. Theologians call that the proto-euangelion, proto the first example of the gospel in scripture. And then with tears in his eyes, God as a good, good father looks at his beloved children, Adam and Eve, and explains to them the consequences of their choices. No parent likes to explain to the kid the consequences of their actions when they mess up, but he explains that Satan's going to attack them. He explains that families are going to be broken, that relationships are going to be difficult, and, and that work is going to be toil. It used to be fun and creative and life-giving, and now it becomes burdensome. It becomes what he has to do in order to eat. Look at verses 17b uh, through 19. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Here's the worst part. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death becomes a part of everyday life. Death becomes a, a norm now in the world when it formerly wasn't. 
But here's the amazing thing about Isaiah 65, okay? It describes God doing all these things, creating, blessing, judging, but it does it in reverse order. When I was reading it and kind of outlining it, I said, wait, that sounds like the creation story, but backwards. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to share this on Sunday. You know, what we're going to see is a, a great reversal in these final two chapters. At the end of the story of everything ever, we're going to see how God is going to judge first those who've rebelled against his good grace towards them, that he has shown them in his love and mercy. Look at verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Remember, the, the, the central question that Isaiah has for God is, where are you? Where are you? And God says, I've been here the whole time. Here I am. Here I am. You know, it's not God who's gone away. It's us who've gone away, right? Don't accuse God. Who are we to judge him? His beloved people, the, the crown of creation, again, his vice regents, didn't want any part of him. Look at verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not tov, not good, following their own not tov devices, following their own ways. Now skip to chapter, uh, verse 5. Who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I'm too holy for you. <laughs> what? These people think that they're good. They think that because they're part of the covenant people of God, that they are holy, but they are wrong. They are mistaken. They've gone their own way, a way that is distinctly not tov. There are thousands, maybe millions, maybe billions of Christians who assume that they're right with God because of their actions, not because of what Jesus Christ has done in their heart. They believe they're going to heaven when they die because they're good people. They say, well, you know, I'm not a murderer. I mean, I'm, you know, yeah, I cheat on my taxes, but, I, you know, of course I'm going to heaven. Yeah, so I, you know, blow through every red light, but who cares? I'm not a drug dealer. I'm, I'm pretty much a contributing member of society. I, you know, go to church every now and then. Of course I'm going to heaven. These are the people of whom Jesus speaks in Matthew 7, when he says that in the last day, he will say to these people, I never knew you. I had no relationship of love with you. Depart from me. None are good apart from God. And no one is saved by any other name under heaven except the name of Jesus Christ. And God is holy. God is just. He, he doesn't just let things slide, you know, because then he wouldn't be holy. That's not tov. Tov requires justice. In Exodus 34, God says he will by no means clear the guilty. So God brings judgment in order to set things right. Look at verses 6 and 7. Behold, it's written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities Together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. 
God will bring justice by judging the rebels. That's the first blank on the second part in your outline. God will judge the rebels. The curses of sin and the curses of generational sin. Do you know the sins of your parents? Do you know the sins of your grandparents? Those, that, that generational curse of sin can only be broken by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lamb's book of life, he talks about it's written that this judgment will come. The Lamb's book of life that contains the name of those who are part of God's children becomes a book of judgment to those whose names are not found in that book. And God will set the record straight one day. These people have run to the hills. That's where they would offer sacrifices to idols and the high places, looking to things other than God to save them, to deliver them. But God is going to judge the counterfeit gods as well. But his judgment is not something that we should fear. It's not something that's poured out on us as his people. Look at verse 8. Thus says in verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine's found in the cluster, and they say, don't destroy it, for there's a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. It's kind of confusing, but basically what it's saying is God's not going to throw out the good with the bad. He's discerning. He knows his children. It's also a warning. Just because you're a grape doesn't mean you're a good grape, right? Just because you're in church doesn't mean that you are a Christian or that you're saved. It's, it's a, a blessing and a warning. In the end, God's servants, though, are so much more than not destroyed. They are blessed. In, in verse 9 to 12, he promises them uh, the promised land. That's the, the second blank on your outline is that he blesses his servants. Look at verses 9 to 12. I'll bring forth offspring from Jacob. This is the line of, of Israel. And from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, which used to be a valley of pain and suffering, a place for herds to lie down, a peaceable kingdom for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Again, this, this dichotomy between the servants of God who choose his way in his promised land and the others who don't, it gets starker even more in verses 13 to 16. This distinct, distinction between God's true servants and those who are just posers, those who, those who pretend to be God's servants. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you pretenders shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name. 
so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. God's saying here to his children, you're going to get a new name, which remember means a new identity. You're going to be called my, my, by my name. I'm going to adopt you and make you formal, legal heirs of my kingdom and my family. It's a huge promise. But those who reject God, their names are going to be a spoken symbol for those who have walked away from the Lord, for those who have rejected his grace. And now for the best part, okay? We know that in the end of the story, the end of, of the great reversal, God's going to judge sin, yes. He's going to bless his children with all these blessings we're going to eat, we're going to drink, we're going to be safe in the land, the promised land. But in order to really have a complete restoration, there has to be a new creation. God has to create again as only he can. He has to barah again. Look at verses 17 and 18. For behold, I barah, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or even come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I barah. For behold, I barah Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is good news. A new creation. A, a new world. That's blank number three in case you hadn't guessed that already. I kind of hinted that that's what was going on. He creates. He blesses. He judges. And then he judges. He blesses. And he creates. Let me ask you a question. It's a very important question. Where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? If, if you said heaven, I just, I just want to push back a little bit, okay? Don't panic. But I just want to, to examine what we just read. And I, I want to read uh, Revelation chapter 21, the end of the story again, uh, through the lens of John the Revelator. Verse, 21, uh, verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I've heard of that somewhere. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, when we say heaven, okay, I'm, I'm kind of being a little facetious. When we say heaven, what I want you to mean and what I want you to think about is the new heaven and new earth. Because what we just read says that heaven will pass away. Heaven will be no more. That means heaven, this is bold. I don't know if anyone said this before to you, but heaven is not forever. Heaven is not where we spend eternity. It's different. It's a distinction. 
Why does it matter? We're gonna talk about that too in a minute. But here's the thing, I don't know about you, harps are difficult to play. Anybody play harp here? You play, yeah, you took the harp lessons. I knew someone did, it was Rachel. Rachel took harp lessons. It's tough, isn't it? There's like a million strings. I don't wanna play a harp riding around on a cloud for a million years. That sounds terrible, okay? That's not where we're headed. That's not where we're headed. That's not a biblical picture of heaven. It's very far from it. That's a cultural picture from heaven. I'm not knocking harpist, Rachel. That's cool. I want to hear you play sometime. That'd be amazing. <laughs> but that's not heaven. That's not a good place to be. That's boring after a while, as Isaiah would say. <laughs> what the Bible talks about is something physical, a new creation where we're going to dwell with him physically forever. Let me ask you another important question. What happens when you die? What happens to a Christian when they die? Okay, first part, easy body goes into the ground or is cremated, right? We know that part. There's a few legal ways. You can't just roll someone down a hill. Don't say that to your spouse. It's not legal to, to bury someone. What happens to our soul? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for those who are in Christ. But, but there's more to the story. That's not the end of the story. There's more to it. The Bible talks a lot, Old Testament, New Testament, about a great resurrection that will happen when Jesus returns and breaks back into our world. This is where I might lose some people. <laughs> if you're thinking zombies, don't panic. Go home, read 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter. We don't have time to go through it all. But why does this matter? Again, because there's no real hope if there's not a complete reversal. It has to be complete and thorough from first to last. A, a physically renewed body, a gloriously resurrected body like Jesus had in a glorious new world, a new creation where heaven and earth are brought together as one. If our hope is only that one glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. If that's our hope, it's a great song, Jack. I bet you play it on the mandolin and it's, it's awesome. Great tune. Great tune, terrible theology. <laughs> Theologians call that escape theology. If our hope is only that one day we can get out of this place, that's what Jim Jones taught, right, when they drank the Kool-Aid. That's not what we're doing here. God has a plan to remake the world as heaven and earth become one, and we're a part of that. Our bodies matter. Physical things matter because it's spiritual too. You know, again, the only logical conclusion if you're just spirit is that our bodies don't matter and one day we'll get out of here. But the idea of bodily resurrection and new creation are vital components of Christian doctrine. It's only been the last 50 years or 100 years that we've lost that doctrine. You know, earlier versions of This Is My Father's World, we sing that last week, Aaron, I think we did sing that last week. The, the earlier version says, this is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and what? Earth and heaven be one. Have you heard that before? That's not how our hymnal has it now. Aaron, I want to sing that that way next time, okay? <laughs> That's the reality for which we're headed. After heaven and earth are gone, we're headed for a very tove new world, a new creation. It's a good place, a tov meod place, a very good place. 
Look at verses 19 and 20. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and in the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. That doesn't mean there's death or sin in the new creation. That's an ironic, uh, symbolic, uh, symbolic way to say there is no sin. There is no death in the new creation. They shall build houses and inhabit them. Then they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Work itself will be redeemed. There will be work in the new creation. And guess what? It'll be the most fulfilling, most creative, most work that you'll stand back and say, oh, it's good. It's very good. That kind of work. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. That was Genesis 3. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. A peaceable kingdom of a new creation. That's where we're headed. And that changes everything. It does. It completes the great reversal. And the great reversal is the story of the gospel. It gives meaning to our lives. It gives purpose and direction to our lives. Knowing the future greatly affects how we live in the present. And because of the great reversal, we can now live more fully into the upside down kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others to do the same. What is the main object of your life? Are you pressing on to the new creation and are you helping others to press on to the new creation? Let's pray. Lord God, what a blessing it is to live on this side of eternity, to know the story. And, and how it ends, to know that one day you are going to make all things new, that justice will be done, even if it doesn't happen in this life, God, we know that one day it will. God, we know that, that, that the cheaters and the liars, they, they will pay. And God, we know that your grace covers over a multitude of our sins as your beloved children, and that you prepare a place for us and it's not just a temporary home in, in a spiritual realm, but it's a whole new world, a whole new place where we can live with you and with each other forever. 
where we will enjoy the fruits of our labors. God, so often in this life, we feel like we're just spinning our wheels. We, we, we only can eat because we toil. God, we, we thank you that one day we will enjoy all of your good gifts and grace without any fear of death, any fear of shame, any fear of pain or suffering. But God, on your holy mountain, you will build a peaceable kingdom in which we will dwell forever and each day will be better than the one before it. And we will cry out around your throne, holy, 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 that you are the lamb who is worthy and you are the lion of Judah. God, until that day comes, may we live with that hope rooted in our hearts that we would play our part in the active plan you have to make all things new and reverse the curse of sin in all of creation. May we be wholly consecrated to you so that we as your church can rise up and, and tell this good news to other and make it the main object of our lives to live towards the new creation and, and to tell as many other people about it with our words, with our actions, with our lives as possible. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. We're gonna sing a hymn of response now. And I invite you, if this is shocking to you or if you just thought, you know, maybe you're a good person but you've never really accepted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in a transformative kind of way in your heart, then don't delay. Make that decision right now to surrender everything you are to him. Let him be in full control of your life. Maybe you've never had that conversion moment and you realize this is the day you need to do that. Maybe it's just that you've kind of drifted away from the faith and you need to, to pledge your life again to what really matters. You know, you can believe whatever you want. That's fine. This is America. You're all free to, to believe whatever you want until you die because then that's all that matters is what's true, what's tove, what's really good. And I pray that you will give your life to that which is really tove. If you've never been baptized and you want to follow Jesus' example of baptism, maybe you're ready to join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member. Whatever decision it is that you need to make today, I pray you'll just, I'll be here at the front if you want to talk. Let's stand together and don't leave this place until you've dealt honestly with the high and holy God.